0: Зараз через споживіль російських керівників для кожної нації світу період невизначеності і небезпеки. Все частіше світ чує та переконується, що попереду може бути ще більш воїн. Але ми маємо силу, щоб це зупинити, ми маємо силу захистити нормальне життя. Світ має цю силу і вона має спрацювати зараз, має зупинити Росію.
1: In addition to the front lines in the Donbass, the battle for Ukraine's future is being fought out in Western capitals. A vital supplemental aid package totaling tens of billions of dollars is stalled in the United States Congress, held up mainly by House Republicans. Meanwhile, in Europe, a 50 billion euro assistance package from the EU is being blocked by Hungarian leader Viktor Orban. These delays come as Ukraine braces for a brutal winter of Russian assaults amid looming weapons and ammunition shortages. So what can we expect going forward in 2024? And what is driving the complex politics of defense assistance to Ukraine on both sides of the Atlantic? And what does it mean for Ukraine's fight for survival and independence? Stick around because I got just the guest to help us break it all down. Hello from my makeshift office studio in Washington, D.C.'s trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Hoboken, New Jersey is Mark Temnitsky, a non resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center and a regular contributor to The Hill, the EU Observer, and Euro News. Welcome to the vertical, Mark. Thank you for having me. So, Mark, you've been covering the political battle over aid to Ukraine on both sides of the Atlantic and are pretty immersed in the details. Let's take the politics of the U.S. and those of Europe in turn. The Pentagon announced this week that the latest tranche of defense aid sent to Ukraine, totaling $250 million, will be the last until Congress appropriates more funds. The Biden administration is requesting tens of billions of dollars in in a defense supplemental bill but that bill is stalled in Congress due mainly to Republican opposition. Break this down for us, Mark. How are the politics of this being played out? What is driving them and where might this be headed?
0: So there's a growing concern within some members of the Republican Party and some constituents too within the United States that there are talking points such as aid to Ukraine is too expensive, aid to Ukraine is cutting from other U.S. programs aid to Ukraine is corrupt because Ukrainian officials are stealing it, et cetera, et cetera. And unfortunately these Russian talking points are growing within the United States and, and these are factually incorrect statements. As we've seen in many reporting on this in several news outlets in the United States, that aid to Ukraine is appropriated, meaning that members within Congress vote on the aid bills before it's passed. There's not money stolen from any other programs. There's also several investigations by the Pentagon, Department of Treasury, et cetera, following aid from the United States to Ukraine. There's zero reporting to this date that Ukraine aid has been mismanaged to to the help of Ukrainian citizens. And finally, Ukraine aid has been very minimal compared to the rest of the Department of Defense budget. You know, it's it
1: about 1%, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah, in fiscal year of 2022, it was 6% of the entire DOD defense budget. And in fiscal year 2023, it was 5.6%. So I think it's very important for listeners to know that with a small fraction of the U S budget and Ukrainians have said on numerous occasions, they don't want foreign boots on the ground to help them with their war. They just want the necessary aid to win this war. They've degraded. Russia, which was formerly believed to have the second strongest military in the world, to now having the second strongest military in Ukraine. So for peanuts, the U.S. and Ukraine are defeating the Russians.
1: Yeah, no, and the thing that I'm, uh, and I I talk to Hill staffers about this uh, fairly regularly, and what I'm always trying to parse out is that there are practical concerns here that you just outlined, misguided although they may be. Um, that this is taking from other programs, that the aid's being mismanaged. This is all nonsense, and everybody that pays attention to this issue knows it. But on the other hand, there are also ideological concerns, I think. Um, You have ideological concerns on the right from the faction I call Putin's little helpers, who are ideologically opposed to supporting Ukraine uh, is it is it out of some uh, love for Putin um, opposition to Western liberal democracy that I'm, I'm trying to parse this out like I know there are those who have honest all by albeit misguided practical concerns but there are those who have ideological issues here and this is the case on both sides of the Atlantic but we'll get to Europe in a moment they cannot be moved and this is what concerns me in terms of the politics of this how do you how do you view this
0: I think that this, unfortunately, is something that has happened throughout history. As you know, in World War One, American citizens were very opposed to the Americans being involved. The same thing happened in World War II, uh, Korean War, Vietnam, Afghanistan, et cetera. So I think this is part of just American history. And, and America has the luxury of being several thousand miles away from the European continent and, and these things. I think also it has to do with the cost of living standards, right? cost for homes or apartments are expensive, food prices are going up, gas prices finally are going down, but they've been expensive for a while. And I think for these citizens, they're thinking very locally about how their wallets are being pinched because of different international events occurring. I think it's important to highlight right, that with the Russian war, Russia has a big control over oil, but also grain is a large export from Ukraine and Ukraine can't send grain to the rest of the world if this war is going on, which is driving up these these prices. I think also Pew Research Center has done a lot of this in the United States and in Europe. The far right sector movements are gaining more steam because people have these sort of very, to quote President Trump, you know, America first or, or their country first, thinking internally before providing assistance to other places in the world.
1: Yeah, and and you 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 also do see though those that are uh, opposed to Ukraine, for lack of a better term. I mean, the yeah. public they are a minority. The public opinion polls uh, bear that out. That that the majority of American citizens do support Ukraine, but there is a it, there's a faction on the right that seems to be enamored of Putin. And there is a smaller faction on the far left that just instinctively is opposed to any armed conflict in the United States participation in any armed conflict. This is less of an issue on the left. We did have this this letter that was signed by members of the Congressional Progressive Mm -hmm. Caucus uh, a while back, Um, but that was the Democrats and the Democratic leadership in Congress seems much more adept at getting their conference in line uh, to vote on this, where you have these... These divisions in Russia, and I'm—I mean, I'm—I'm I'm getting worried now, specifically after the Pentagon announcement this week. Specifically, watching um, what's going on in Congress at the moment—they just managed to uh, apparently avert a shutdown, but that did not include funds for Ukraine, uh, Taiwan, or Israel, um, or for the border, for that matter. Um, mm-hmm. in, in that, you, are you optimistic, or Pat? You must watch this very closely as a Ukrainian American. You—you, um, you, um, yeah, are you optimistic Optimistic. This is going to get passed because I'm getting, I was optimistic until a few days ago.
0: I'm generally an optimist. So I'd like to think that at the end of the day, everything will work out, you know, in the 11th hour, as they always say, the United States is the wealthiest and strongest country in the world. So there's no doubt in my mind that these funds are available and things will happen. I think what is, what really boggles my mind is most of the Republican leadership and members within Congress do support Ukraine and and it's the small faction i think that has this chokehold over over everyone else and until recently right this this tying ukraine aid with the border situation i i believe just came out of thin air there was there was no explanation about you know we have to defend national security etc and i know that the democrats have offered to work with republicans some on border and of course these are political matters so there will be disagreement on, on certain things but not a single active-duty American soldier has died in the war. Uh, Like we talked about earlier, this is peanuts for US aides to go to Ukraine. So I really don't understand why this is happening. And something that does concern me is this is an election year, right? So elections in the United States will be held in November. And the sooner we get to November, the less likely elected officials will be thinking about policy and they'll be thinking more about how do I get reelected so I can maintain my position of power within either the House or the Senate.
1: No, you're right that there uh, the votes are there in both houses of Congress to pass this supplemental. Uh, the problem is getting it to the floor. Um, the problem is that you know Speaker Johnson is a f- terrified of his right flank, and he won't bring it to the floor. Is what it looks like to me. And that and this I asked some staffers this point blank, I said, is there a deal to be done here or is this opposition just um, incorrigible? It cannot be addressed. And they were confident that, yes, there are some who are incorrigible, but most of them are, are, are there is a deal to be had. And I believe that until now, I'm just watching this play out now. And like now the clock is ticking. Ukraine just got its last $250 billion from the U.S. That, that, that money's going to run out. Um, Ukraine's using ammunition at a faster rate than the U.S. can produce it. Quite frankly, that's a whole other issue that's it's unrelated to the politics. There's a global ammunition shortage out there, uh, which is why Russia has to turn to North Korea uh, itself to get ammunitions. But, but you seem, you're, you're still confident, despite the dilemma that Speaker Johnson has at getting this vote to the floor.
0: I think it has to do with compromise, and unfortunately, politics within the United States has become even more divided than in previous decades, but I think something has to give in order in order for U- Ukraine aid to go through. I, d- I don't know what that is, but also, to, to your earlier point, right, Speaker McCarthy got chased out of Congress, and yep. now there are rumors that, that Johnson's going to get chased out of Congress as well for his speaker position. At
1: least spe- chased out of the speaker's chair. Yeah.
0: Yes, yes. And I think that they have, they being the Republicans, have to overcome this, frankly, insignificant portion. I think it's 50 some odd members in the House, which is very small compared to the House of Representatives right. entirely. And they do have the votes. It's, I think that you know people have to put egos aside and, and stop being stubborn and think about the greater good with, with these causes.
1: Yeah, and this is where I this is where my pessimism on this sets in. I just don't think that's gonna happen. Um, I think this issue has become partisan in the United States. Um, this is an election year. I mean, it's remarkable that this issue has become partisan, but it has. It's remarkable that it's the party of Ronald Reagan that's that that's uh basically assisting uh assisting the Kremlin here, whether intentionally or, or unintentionally. But this is the this is the sad truth we have to deal with. I mean you still see ukrainian flags flying from windows all over the country right um but yet but yet that that feeling in the early stage of the war where the country did seem to be really united behind ukraine it's an inspirational story Uh, america loves a david and goliath story right um america loves the little guy standing up to the bully they kind of tapped into a lot of things but i feel that now dissipating this is going to be a long war um we've had discussions in the last two so two or three episodes of this podcast looking at the military situation and the consensus with of every million we're going to talk about the war itself in the second half of the show but the consensus of every uh, military expert I talk to is this is going to be a long war there's a path for Ukraine to win but that path is dependent upon this aid. Um, if, if the American situation isn't depressing enough, uh, let's move to Europe. Um, <laughs> to Europe, uh, Hungarian leader Viktor Orban is blocking a 50 billion euro uh, d- defense aid package at a summit of EU leaders. Uh, the, the EU leaders will meet again in February. This was back in December. Uh, that Orban blocked that EU leaders are scheduled to meet in February to give it another try. And I was uh at the comments by the European Commissioner Ursula von der Leyen this week that the EU would find a workaround to bypass Orban's obstructionism. I want to kind of drill into that a little bit. But Orban may not be alone. Right. The new Hungarian Prime Minister Robert Fizzo and his Smyrna Party are opposed to aid to Ukraine. Um, as is the new government in the Netherlands, led by Geert Wilders in his far-right group, Party for Freedom. It seems that Putin's little helpers are flexing their muscles in Europe as well as in the United States Congress. How do you how do you see the European situation playing out?
0: I think a lot more optimistic, and and the reason I say that is because Ukraine was just approved the possibility of becoming a member of the European yep. Union, and I, and I think that that's massive. Of course, it was a symbolic gesture, but it shows that the Europeans are united on Ukrainian affairs. They also, many of the Eastern countries, you know, you have the Baltics, Poland, Romania, they're very familiar with how the Russians operate. And and I think more and more so other countries within Europe are finally getting it. You know, when the war began, there was a big push about trying to limit and reduce EU reliance on Russian energy. They've, put a lot of sanctions on Western companies, et cetera, that are operating in Russia. So I think that the possibilities are there. Something I read recently, I don't know how this would work. I, I'm not an expert on how European parliament as an institution functions, but there have been talks about implementing some sort of veto where Hungary can't vote to oppose aid mm-hmm. to Ukraine, as well as, as, I guess, limiting their vote in general.
1: Yeah, that so will that- be in the commission, not the parliament, but yeah, 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 yeah th- this is what I'm hearing too. I mean, it, but, but you have, again, th- the trend in Europe, I mean, the, the results of elections have been mixed, right? Mm-hmm. The the, the uh, FITO won in Slovakia. That's not good news for friends of Ukraine. Wilders won in the Netherlands. That's not good news for friends of Ukraine. The Polish elections went quite well, although Poland wasn't really a problem here. It was a, it was problematic in other ways, but not problematic on, on aid to Ukraine. But we do see this. I had thought this rising tide of nationalism in Europe was ebbing and maybe it hasn't crested yet. We got, you just recently wrote a piece on the upcoming elections in Europe and how these might impact aid to Ukraine. Can you kind of break that down for us a bit?
0: Yes, certainly. So so there are several elections happening next, or I guess this year. (laughs) So Finland, Slovakia, Lithuania, Iceland, and Moldova have presidential elections. Portugal, Belgium, Croatia, Austria, Romania, and the UK have parliamentary elections. And then of course the European parliament has its own elections. Though. So there could be a very possible situation where a lot of parties and changing in, in different power goes through, etc. Again, I'm more of an optimist. President Macron defeated La in the presidential elections in France. So that was a defeat to the far right movement. Oddly enough, while far right groups have gained steam in Italy, they're government is very still supportive of Ukraine and they're sending aid. I know that while Slovakia and the Netherlands have said they're, they're opposed to sending additional defense aid to Ukraine, no disrespect to them, but their budgets are significantly smaller than Germany, France, the United Kingdom. So it's still, and most recently the Netherlands said that they're going to be sending F-16s to Ukraine. So while. There are these far right individuals saying we're opposed to aid. You know, is that actually happening, or are they just saying that to hold power? I'm not. I'm not entirely sure. So from that regard, I, I'm. I think there are. There's a better chance of Europe succeeding than the United States.
1: Yeah. No. I, I. I tend to think you're right, and I also think there are some workarounds that can be. You know, the bigger European countries can do it at a in a unilateral basis or in a multilateral basis outside the context of the EU. Like, you know, you know, if, if if Germany, France and Italy in the UK, I mean, UK is not in, in- in yes. the eu but if, you know that this adds it up i'm not sure if they can reach that 50 billion euro plateau that they were trying to reach because if we got you know the the, the 50 billion euro from from europe uh, another what is it 47 billion from the us although i've seen a figure as high as 70 billion from the us that would get ukraine through this coming year right now my concern is making sure ukraine survives 2024 and we'll get into that there the, i have a very specific reasons for that, but we'll get into that in the second half. Any other thoughts on the politics of this in the US and in Europe, Um, how Ukraine aid is becoming an election issue on both sides of the Atlantic, a very partisan election issue? Any other additional thoughts before we shift gears and kind of look at the situation on the ground and what this all means?
0: I, I think something to also suggest, which perhaps is not being talked enough, is you know god forbid we hope we don't get to this stage but this is in some ways how world war ii began right so hitler and the nazis were elected they took they took control in germany and then they decided to annex austria and no one did anything about it and then they decided they wanted to take land in czechia and nothing really happened and then by the time that a lot of appeasement was happening the germans invaded poland and then you had this entire global conflict that happened and and my concern is Putin has said that he sees NATO as a threat. He said he, that he wants to be remembered in Russian history as, as a great leader like Peter the Great or Catherine the Great. So you, you're dealing with someone who won't stop unless he is stopped by power. He, he's not going to negotiate these things. Right. And my concern is if Ukraine falls, the baltics are next he's he's already been the russians have been toying with countries and, and governments and systems within the baltics you know Poland could happen etc and i i think what's really important is ukraine is also an ally it, it wants a real democracy it wants to be involved in western institution it's changing its government and making several reforms while it's also fighting a war this is this is not a failed country this is someone who wants to succeed and and the more we stress that the Ukrainians are like us, I think the more likelihood there is that people will understand why aid is important, etc.
1: Yeah, I see other parallels to the period before the U.S. got involved in World War II. There was a very active, what we would today call active measures uh, from the Nazis, try, uh, trying to keep the keep public opinion against. United States entering the war leveraging it through uh, sympathetic uh, people with Nazi sentiments in the United States now that all ended with Pearl Harbor of course I hope we don't have to have something like that to wake the United States out of its stupor right now but uh, yeah I, I agree with you that there is a lack of Understanding across the political spectrum of the dangers of losing in Ukraine and what what could be next. I'm not so sure we would immediately see uh, Putin challenging NATO because then he is actually fighting the United States and he's kind of got his hands full with Ukraine. Any mythology that Putin's military is stronger than NATO should have been dispelled, you know, in in, in Ukraine. But I agree with you that we really need to be better at articulating the mm. stakes in this. I wasn't worried about that again until very recently because I'm just looking at the politics, and now we've reached the pretty much the 11th hour on this. The wolf is at the door. Um, yes, so- and I
0: think that's a big disservice with politicians and, and current governments in, in that they have not really conveyed that message to their Populists, their voters, you know. If, yeah,
1: if the president's trying. I, mean, I think the president's doing a good job of articulating it, but uh, but I think we need to have a very strong marketing campaign along these lines uh, to, to to reach the public. But again, the polarized nature of the U.S. right now, I am worried if this logjam can't be broken uh that's a good way to segue uh in a few moments we'll continue our discussion and look at what the stalled assistance means as ukraine enters a very difficult 2024 and as the war approaches its second anniversary I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host, my name's Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UJ McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Hoboken, New Jersey, is Mark Timnitsky, a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center and a regular contributor to The Hill, the EU Observer, and Euronews. His work has also appeared in Newsweek and the New York Times. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. And you can now follow us on threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical. And Power Vertical is launching a new Substack, So keep your eye out for that on all social media platforms.
0: Продовжуємо нашу комунікацію з партнерами щодо санкцій проти Росії, їхньої повної дії. Усі наші дипломатичні представники мають активізуватися, щоб і партнери реагували активніше на кожен випадок обходу санкцій з боку Росії. Це не просто абстрактне питання, це про те, як держава-терорист виробляє зброю, зокрема ракети.
1: So Ukraine's counteroffensive did not produce the desired results in 2023. And now the Russian front lines in southern and eastern Ukraine are heavily fortified and heavily mined, disrupting and halting the potential advancement of Ukrainian forces. Most military observers expect Ukraine to use 2024 to regroup, resupply, and reconstitute their forces. Most observers also expect Russia to launch counteroffensives in the coming year. To be sure, Ukraine has still been adept at disrupting Russian forces in Crimea and damaging Russian naval naval operations in the Black Sea. But for Ukraine, the consensus appears to be that 2024 is going to be a year to regroup, not to lose significant territory, to menace Russia and Crimea in the Black Sea and prepare for the possibility of fresh counteroffensives in 2025. But for Ukraine to implement this theory of success, The Western assistance needs to flow. Mark, unpack that situation on the ground for us. How do you see this going forward with or without the aid?
0: So again, as an optimist, i like to push back a bit on that point. I I think it's incorrect to say that the counteroffensive in 2023 was not successful. And one of the reasons I believe that is I don't recall President Zelensky and his military leaders presenting a point-by-point point plan to the international community about what we want to achieve. In addition, there were several successes. So to date, the Ukrainians have now reclaimed more than 50% of Russian po- occupied territory. I think that's very important because they're helping liberate towns and, and cities, et cetera. Something well, that they've also done- most of those done.
1: gains came in 2022.
0: Yes, this is true. Yes. But they, they did make some territorial ground. And then I think what's really significant is they're pushing back further and further the Russian naval presence on the Black Sea. Uh, you know, a country with more or less no naval power is is pushing this back. And as a result, they're helping push through a new grain export, which is massive. You know, more people now around the world are getting access to food. So so I think it's a little unfair to say that it was entirely false. But yes, of course, there were many expectations things were going to go better. They didn't and get think... the
1: militable. They wanted to get yes. the
0: militable. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think... In part, that's on countries within NATO and and the European Union and that these leaderships delayed and stalled aid packages that they wanted to send. And the more time that passed, it allowed, exactly like you were saying earlier, the Russians in the east and the south further fortified their areas. They started putting more mines now. And now as the Ukrainians move into these territories, right, they have to demine everything because they don't wants to lose equipment or lives going through these things. And it's, there's all these hurdles that they have to overcome. I I am very optimistic that, you know, for 400 years my people have been fighting against Russians for independence and we still exist as a people and a language. That unfortunately doesn't help with the innocent lives that are, that are being lost. But I have no doubt in my mind that We will win this war it's just a matter of how committed the rest of the world is helping us in end this conflict and you know the sooner right like we were saying there's delays in aid but delays in aid allow the russians to re-strategize and regroup if aid you know i'm not advocating by any means that aid be forced through because there's a process in terms of things have to be vetted and and examined so things are not mismanaged but the sooner the ukrainians have that aid the sooner they can make their pushes within these heavily fortified areas that Russia controls.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I know there's a lot of relitigation about the counteroffensive last year, and I'm not sure that gets us, and it, it, only in terms of lessons learned is the only way I think that that kind of moves us forward. I mean, I have heard the argument that you just made, and I, I think it certainly has some validity that the West was a bit slow with the aid. Um, remember we we had this long-standing song and dance from the, U- the United States. You know, no, we won't give you attack. We won't give you HMs. Okay, we'll give you HMs. No, yes. okay, we'll no, we won't give you attackums. Okay, we'll give you attackums. No, we won't give you exit scenes and so on and so forth. There's some truth to that. There's also some truth, uh, and I'm sure you've heard these arguments of the 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 differences in Ukraine over how to proceed in the counteroffensive, whether or not to spend a lot of manpower and resources on Bakhmut. Uh, my understanding was that was the president's decision uh, and solution was was opposed to that. The president's the ultimate commander-in-chief. there was there were uh, debates over whether they should go through do, do one just one vector straight to Melitopol or try to probe along three vectors. so I so um, but relitigating this is fine for militaries to go through lessons learned, and so the, the, those mistakes are not repeated in the future or uh, you know this lack of success can be learned from, right? But now we are where we are, right? We are where we are. Here in 2024, we got this heavily fortified, stalemated front line in the east and the south. We have Ukraine in a position where it has to reconstitute its forces. Uh, 2024 has to be a year of defense for Ukraine. While they're defending, they can do things to harass the Russians. You can basically uh, disrupt Russian operations in Crimea, disrupt operations in the Black Sea. But I don't expect that front line to move this year. Um, and if it moves, I'm I fear it's going to move in a direction neither of us want to yes. see it move, and that that's that's where we are right now. So how do you see the coming year playing out? You just recently did a couple of pieces on predictions for where the war is going to go in the coming years. What do you what do you see?
0: So I think there's also a difference with how the governments are run, right? So for example, President Zelensky is currently having a discussion with the military about will they do another mobilization, and, and mm. I think the reason why this Delay in an announcement shows that Ukrainians really care about the lives of these citizens who are going to defend the country. Whereas in Russia, it's a right; it, they're throwing people. It's like cannon fodder. They're throwing right. men in, and constantly. So, I I think that an easy prediction for this calendar year, right? The Russians have the presidential election in March. I have no doubt in my mind that Putin will win, and I think that's something he'll try to do, and convey in his victory speeches, saying it's about you know we have to quit claim Ukraine. Ukraine is not a real country. You know, we're fighting against the West. Perhaps with that announcement, he'll say that they're doing another mobilization Well, where they'll get more conscripts. And that's something that the Russians have, right? It's a significantly larger country, not only by size, but also by population that, compared to Ukraine. So I think that from that perspective, Putin and his leadership have no signs of ending the war. I think for Ukraine, like we were saying, 2024 is really a year of defending what currently is ukraine and then trying to make strategic advancements where it can and one of those potentially is if the western countries continue to give these long range missiles to the ukrainians they can attack finally areas in crimea or parts within russia where they have ammo depots or military factories etc to destroy those areas to delay future russian advancements etc so i think it's a lot of strategy and perhaps we as citizens not privy to, you know, sensitive and classified information. There will be operations happening that we're not aware of. So it, it'll be much more of I guess ops and, and yep. those types of matters. Oh, yeah. An right oil and
1: depot was just blowing up in Bryansk, for example. Uh, yes. This yes. Week. Um now the other the other piece of this you, br- you brought up Russia so I'm going to kind of drill into this because last week we had James Shear on the program talking about the the weaknesses that basically Russia has going forward their hydrocarbon industry is is not as healthy as people like to present it there's this conventional wisdom that's kind of incorrect that Russia has basically weathered the sanctions and the impact of the sanctions have been blunted I would argue that the jury's still out on that and if you look at the trend lines um, in terms of uh, of Rush, Russian oil and natural gas production and the revenues that it's getting from that that they are going in the wrong direction for Russia they're going in the right direction for Ukraine so I don't think Russia has unlimited resources here and I think this is another area where the West can plug a lot of the holes in the sanctions because Russia is very adept at evading sanctions they're very very good at this we have to kind of lean on the countries that are enabling to evade sanctions and some of these countries are Western partners right yes uh, you got countries like Georgia and our Armenia and uh, Turkey, um, and Kazakhstan. Those are the four main, uh, the four main culprits here. And I think that the 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 U.S. needs to, in the in the West, needs to lean on these countries to kind of plug those holes. There's also the other the issue of Russian seized assets. Um, we could solve the problem of assistance to Ukraine um, in, with a stroke of a pen there but there are people that are a little bit worried about the precedent that that would set. I think those worries are overblown, but they are very, very real and very, very sincere. How do you, now looking at Ukraine, if this aid does not get through, what does Ukraine do? I mean, they're running out of ammunition, they're running out of weapons, they're, out of, they're running out of money, and I, I, I worry that the situation could be bleak indeed. If, um, if this aid package uh, does not go through. Now, does your optimism extend to Ukraine's ability to, to, to weather this? Or, I mean, I, I hope this is not, I hope this is a pure hypothetical. We're never gonna, it's never gonna actually happen in reality, but it is something we have to contemplate.
0: Absolutely, and, and I think something to discuss too is just the resilience and grit of Ukrainian people, right? You have stories about people who own factories, have converted their factories to now make bulletproof vests or drones, etc. cetera. People are making make-at-home bombs to help the armed services and the volunteers, and so. so Ukrainians are very creative people and they're very, very educated and and know how to deal with these things. I think also having looked at some statistics and reports, the majority of the country, you know, we're talking 80 plus percent are still very supportive of President Zelensky. They're very supportive of the military and they support and believe that they'll win the war. So I think morale is still very, very high despite all the travesties occurring and Ukrainians have done wonders against the Russians so far. Now, of course, that's a big part due to Western assistance and Western weapons. But I think it's shown that the Ukrainians are capable of the, exactly like we discussed, the, the concern is as this continues and they start running out of ammunition, then where do you get the types of defense mechanisms to fight against the ongoing Russian force.
1: Yeah, no, this is this is this is something that concerns me. I mean, we we had Michael Kaufman, the military expert on about a month or so back. And he was talking, as you said, the Ukrainians are a nation of MacGyvers. They're a nation of of tinkerers and innovators. And one idea that's out there is to help Ukraine do this at scale, right? Do a lot of the things they're doing at scale. Remember the missile that took out the Moskva was not a Western supplied weapon. It was a Ukrainian missile that was MacGyvered that's right. by by some clever Ukrainians to make it work. Now, if you could do that at scale, that could possibly tip the balance. Now, if there's a way the West could help Ukraine do that at scale, I think that's a direction we could possibly uh, go in. You, you, you've talked about how the Ukrainians are kind of doing this on their own. Mm-hmm. Imagine if we could scale this up. Um, but do you see the same kind of military plan going forward with the basically whole territory, harass Russia in the Black Sea, disrupt Russian operations in Crimea? Because I really do think Crimea is the key here. To, and I think that's where like a lot of the attention is going to be in the coming year in terms of, of Ukrainian uh, missile attacks. What do you what do you how do you see the situation playing out going forward?
0: I think the Ukrainian military has to determine it's something that they've been very cognizant of, I think, is limiting as many casualties as possible and and i think for them it's seeing what is our rate of success to achieve some sort of objective with the lowest number of lives lost or injuries and and i think that that will impact their planning going forward right if, if they see that this is as they say suicide mission to try to obtain certain cities etc then, then that disrupts matters and i think it's all unfortunately down to what the united states and the eu wants to do because if the ukrainians don't have that wep- those weapons like we discussed then that limits in some cases where do we move forward on the battlefield
1: yeah, no, the assessments I am hearing is that if this aid doesn't come through, this could this could get very bleak, very 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 fast. And I hope that message is uh is taken on board on Capitol Hill, not far from where I'm sitting now. But I but again, going back to our discussion of the first half, I I I'm worried about that. I'm deeply worried about it. Uh we're bumping up toward the end. Here is there anything you wanted to add to uh be, be, before we wrap it up for the week?
0: Yes, something I'd like to say is American citizens and people within Europe, although I live in the United States, so as an American citizen, I'm much more familiar with those electoral processes, call your representatives, write letters to them, encourage them and urge them to pass this new aid package because I formerly had an internship in a Senate office when I was back in New York state and These people, they read letters and Mm -hmm. take calls from their constituents. So it's, it's not like if you write and you'll never hear that they they will respond to you and these engagements will further push our members in Congress to vote on these matters at the end of the right. They are our elected representatives and they stand for the elected people. So I think putting an emphasis on, on them to do things is important. And just also, there are many wonderful organizations, both that provide financial humanitarian medical aid, and in some cases they do defense things legally that people can donate to. You know, everyone knows about RASM, there's also several scouting organizations within the United States, there's United for Ukraine, there are many others, and just these are other ways to continue providing aid to Ukraine while elected officials, you know, do their dance and trying to figure things out too, so it's another way to help.
1: Yeah, your point of contacting your representatives is well taken. I, I know because uh, I, I work closely with a lot of the Ukrainian diaspora here, I know the Ukrainian diaspora is very, very, very active on this. Um, the Ukrainian National Congress Committee in the United States basically has its Ukraine days on the on the hill fairly regularly bringing Ukrainian Americans from all over the country to Washington to meet with their with with their representatives and their and their senators. They give out awards to the, the U.S. members of Congress who have been the best friends of Ukraine in the previous years. And, and, and I, I know this is happening. Right, I know this is happening. If we get, can, if we can broaden this and get Americans who aren't Ukrainians, right, yes,
0: to, yes, to, to,
1: in, into the picture, anybody that really cares about this, uh, to put the pressure on again. But the thing I worry about is there are some whose opposition to this is just not movable. That's what concerns me. Um, so not a, not the most optimistic uh, way to close out the podcast. But these are the times we live in. Um, unfortunately, that's all we have time for today as I'm watching the clock. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlanta Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlanta Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Hoboken, New Jersey, one of my favorite states, has been Mark Timnitsky, a non-resident fellow at the Atlanta Council's Eurasia Center. Center and a regular contributor to The Hill, the EU Observer, and Euro News. Mark, thanks for an enlightening discussion. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to be th- here. Thanks for coming on. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Jarir Rahman is ably filling in for Lance Ligas in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. Jarir also handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at PowerVertical.org. And you can still follow us on the platform formerly known as Twitter, at Power Vertical. You can also now follow us on Threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical, and keep Your eye out for the new Power Vertical Substack, which is, it's been launched, but it's not really in full form yet, but it's going to be out there soon. So keep an eye out for that on all of my social media platforms. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.